Hey, thanks so much for checking out Crossview Church Sermons and listening to this podcast. Every week you can expect a message that strengthens your faith and encourages you in your walk with God. You're about to hear a message from our lead pastor, Chris Dirksen. We're in this series called The Intentional Life. We're in part five. We've been looking at the question, how do we live meaningful, fulfilled lives for God? What does the Bible tell us? What are the, what are the pieces of life? What, what does it mean to live a meaningful, purpose-filled life? What does the Bible tell us? And so from Genesis 1 and 2 primarily, we've divided it into four things that the Bible teaches about all of these things are needed to live a fully human life. So one is work and purpose. We need all of us. Even if it's not work for money, you might be retired, whatever the case. But all of us needs some kind of work to do, some purpose, some responsibility. We all need relationships. A life that is all work and no relationships is not fulfilling and meaningful and reflecting God's glory the way it needs to. And then we spent the last two weeks looking at worship and gratitude. And today we're going to get to, finally, rest and delight. All right? Now, I think in our community and some of us with our history... We would think out of all of these, like these three all make sense. You know, work, friendship, worship. Those are obviously the big things, the spiritual things. Those are the things for pleasing God. And for a lot of us, I think maybe in this community, we would think of rest as that's just something you do so that you can recharge and go back to work. But in actuality, I want us to think about rest differently, that rest isn't just something you do so you can get back to work, that rest is actually something good in and of itself. And I think the way we need to think about this, first of all, is just to look at how God has made us. Have you ever stopped to think about how weak and limited God has made us as human beings? And there's lots of things we could look at. And, and by the way, he wouldn't have needed to do that. He could have made us, I mean, if we human beings have figured out how to make machines that can work 24-7, God could have figured out how to make us as creatures, creatures that could work 24-7, work, work, work. But he didn't. And one way we know that is just look at the fact that we all need sleep. Have you ever thought about that? The average human being needs seven or eight hours of sleep every day. All right? Now, I know some of you, particularly maybe some of you guys are going, I don't need seven or eight hours. The truth of the matter is, even most of you who think you don't need seven or eight hours, need seven or eight hours. That's why you're grumpy and unhealthy. All right? And yes, maybe there's some odd, you know, people out there that don't actually need seven or eight. But the vast majority of human beings, even if you don't get that, that's what you need. But I want you to think about that for a moment. That means one-third of your life, one-third of your life is going to be spent flat, well, maybe not flat on your back, however you sleep, but is going to be spent unconscious lying in a bed. So if you're 75 years old, that means literally about 25 years of your life will be spent lying unconscious in bed. And by the way, actually, I heard something funny in the, in the research. They said it's because some people are like, no, I don't, I'm not, I, I don't sleep nearly that, you know, a third of my life. They said, if, but if you add up all the time you also spend trying to sleep, it'll definitely add up to a third. So some of me maybe more can relate to that. But if you, I mean, if you live to 90 years old, 30 years is just unconscious lying in bed. And God could have made us, I mean, if we figured out how to make machines, God could have figured out how to make us machines. Why on earth would God make us to need that much complete just out of it time? Why would he make us that weak? And then the the crazy thing is, not only will you spend a third of your life 
you know, unconscious or trying to be unconscious. But then even of the two-thirds of your life where you're awake, you still need lots of time to rest. Every day you come home from work, what do you do? After you eat supper or whatever, you sack out on the couch, right? You, you read a book or you watch a game or whatever it is. Every weekend, we need our weekend. We need days where we don't work. And every year, we need our holidays where we don't work. The fact of the matter is, we desperately need rest. We can't go without rest. And when you look at just the sheer amount of time that our biology requires, the way God has made us, when you look at the sheer amount of time our biology requires that we rest, one of the things we can see in God's purposes is that Rest is not just something we do so we can get back to work, like I said before. It is an important part of being human and pleasing God in its own right. How many of you have ever thought of actually resting well? That making time, not just for sleep, but making time for play and delight and fun and holidays, that all of those things are actually deeply spiritual. They're actually deeply part of what it means to be a human being made in God's image. And that if you don't do those things well, that's actually part of not doing a good job of worshiping God. They're deeply spiritual things. Okay, so now I want to take you, though, to, I want to, take you to Matthew chapter 3. And I got this idea. I don't know if he's in this service right now, if Carl Reimer. Carl, just yell if you're in here somewhere. Okay, I don't hear him. But I actually, I don't get very many good ideas from Carl. <laughs> but I got this idea from Carl. So Carl and I, Carl was talking to me. We had a meeting on Tuesday. And he told me about this sermon he had heard from another pastor. Now that, okay, put that aside for just a second. I said, you're listening to another pastor? I was deeply, deeply emotionally hurt by that. But anyway... And he, heard this, he heard this sermon from another pastor where the pastor was sharing about Jesus' baptism in, in Matthew 3 and shared something about Jesus' baptism that I had never thought of it that way before. I mean, it's a famous story, right? Let's, let's go and read it. I want to show you this too and what it has to do with rest. So here's the story. It starts, then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to be baptized by John. Now, first thing I want you to notice, Matthew 3. This is right near the beginning of Matthew's gospel. This is right after what we think of as the Christmas story. All right? Now, so this is before Jesus has done any of his ministry. He hasn't healed anyone. He hasn't raised anyone from the dead. He hasn't preached. He hasn't cast out any demons. He certainly hasn't died or, or risen again yet, right? So this is before he's done anything. Now, commentators tell us he's probably about 30 years old. So there's this huge gap from the Christmas story when he was a baby and he's born to Matthew 3. Suddenly he's about 30 years old. He's getting baptized. And we have this huge gap. We don't know much about his life. All we know is that it was a very average human life. We know that because in other passages, when he goes to his hometown of Nazareth, the people he grew up with said, you can't be the Messiah. Who is this guy? Who is this? just a carpenter's son. He hasn't been doing miracles. He hasn't been preaching. He's just a normal human being. He's living a normal human life. He hasn't done any of the ministry that he's going to cram into the last three years of his life. By the way, quick aside. This isn't in the notes. Um, a lot of people have this Some Christians have this idea that your life, your ministry life, should be as busy as what Jesus' is because we're supposed to be like copying him. And yeah, if you want to kill yourself... His ministry life lasted three years, and he was single, and at the end of it, he died. 
Lots of good reasons there for you not to copy everything Jesus did. All right? It's not a model for how busy you need to be. But the, the, but the important thing for here is, up to this point, he's just been normal. No ministry stuff. Now, let's keep going. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was open, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. Now, this is where, again, this is a very famous story. Most of us know this. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son whom I love. With him, I am well pleased. So we all, you know, most of us, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story. Jesus gets baptized and God says, with him, I'm well pleased. But now I want you to draw your attention as my conversation with Carl. And I was like, oh yeah, that's so neat. I never thought about that before. Is I want to just draw your attention to the when. Remember what I just said. Jesus hasn't done anything yet. He hasn't done any of the amazing Jesus stuff. He hasn't done the the big sacrifice stuff, the miracles, the preaching, the demon casting out. He's just been a normal human being for 30 years. And God says, with him, I am well pleased. Wait a minute. That So consciously, you can all see, okay, 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 I see that. That's kind of cool. Yeah, that's neat. Yeah, that's good. Subconsciously, though, isn't it true that many of us labor under this idea that God always wants more? If you want to please God, we wouldn't necessarily say it out loud. Most pastors, self-respecting pastors, wouldn't say it out loud. But we have this subconscious idea that if you want God to be pleased, God doesn't say, I am well pleased with someone who hasn't prayed a lot of hours who hasn't evangelized a lot of people, who hasn't sacrificed a lot for a lot of ministry, that is reserved for people who do a lot of stuff for God. And yet, actually, here we see something totally different. We see a God who gives out, I am well pleased because of who someone is, not what they've done. See, here's the important thing. Because this doesn't just apply to Jesus. Here's the thing you have to know about God's love that's so different than human love. See, many of us grow up in, of course, imperfect families. We're imperfect. Our parents are imperfect. Our kids will be imperfect. And we, many of us grow up with imperfect examples of love and give imperfect examples of love. And so often as humans, even when we intend differently, the love we give to others is actually based on what they do. Isn't that true? Even as parents, we love our kids to death. And yet somehow it often comes across that we only love them when they're good. But here we see that God's love is something so pure. It's like when you, when you, when you hold a baby, not when they're crying or pooping or any of those things, because then it's a little bit of a different feeling, but when they're just being good. Oh, see, there it is again. You know when you just hold a baby? Before the first service, there was a little baby in the lobby, and she just had these fat little legs. And Oh, I just, I just can I please squeeze them? And you just want to squeeze them, and some of you are like, okay, this is weird. But anyway, but you just delight them. It's just it's so amazing. They just, what, why do you love this baby? Because of what they can do. You know, they're just amazing. God's love, he delights. This is with him. This is my son, whom I love. It's not about what he's doing. You don't have to do a bunch of stuff for me to be pleased with him. With him, I'm well pleased. God delights in us, not from us. And by the way, if you can never get this into your psyche, this is part of the reason many of us can never truly rest. Because we think we always have to be doing something 
to make somebody happy. We always have to be doing something to make God happier with us. What if God actually just really loves you for you? Now, that's actually kind of dangerous, isn't it? That's actually kind of dangerous in Christianity. I'll tell you why that's kind of dangerous. And some of you maybe have, are thinking ahead like that already. If God already loves me for me, if he delights in me, not what I can do for him, well, what's the next question? What motivation do I have to do stuff for God? Now, isn't it kind of sad that we ask that question? If God just delights in me for me, well, then what's the motivation? What's the motivation for doing stuff for God? And what does this have to do with a sermon on rest? I'll tell you what this has to do with a sermon on rest. If you have not subconsciously in your psyche come to grips with this, if you have not come to a place where you actually feel like God delights in you for you, where you actually don't have a burden on you that makes you constantly feel like you have to do more, 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 that you haven't done enough to make God happy with you, if you're wrestling under that burden, okay, I'm going to tell you two of the primary motivations that are going to be at work in your life, and they're going to keep you, they're going to keep you from ever truly coming to rest, and those two motivations are guilt and fear. If your life is lived, and we'll come right back to this in just a moment, if your life is lived under this subconscious cloud of God's not happy with me and I need to do more, you will never be able to come to rest because your only motivation in life won't come out of already being delighted in. It'll just come out of, I need to do more. And so you'll be driven by fear and guilt. Now, a lot of Christians go, wait a minute, we need fear and guilt. We absolutely need fear and guilt. Aren't there lots of Bible passages that talk about fear and guilt? So we have to, in order to get to the rest of this stuff about rest, we've got to spend a bunch of time talking about fear and guilt. Because it's true that fear and guilt are hardwired into our brains. They are there for a reason. You and I need some fear and some guilt. But only the right kind. So let's talk about what healthy guilt is for, because when you see what healthy guilt is for, it'll be easier for you to identify what unhealthy guilt is is doing in your life. So here's what healthy guilt is for. Healthy guilt is a negative emotion you feel after, not before. Healthy guilt is not a feeling you just are supposed to get up in the morning with and, oh, I feel so bad, so I'm going to do this. And I feel so bad, I don't do enough for God, I'm going to do this. That's not healthy guilt. Healthy guilt is a negative emotion you only feel after doing something wrong. You stole something. You hurt somebody with your words. You lied. You cheated. After you did something wrong, it made you feel bad, which then motivates you to make things right. And then in brackets, did it, whoa, whoa, whoa. Something funky going on there. And then, in brackets, it goes away. Healthy guilt is not a motivation for doing good things. It is a motivation to make you do, get things right after you've done bad things. Does that make sense to you? So if you break one of the Ten Commandments, you steal or cheat someone, 
Guilt is a good thing you need, and then you go, oh, I feel terrible. You go back and you make it right. You murder someone. You feel bad, you turn yourself in, you go to jail. This is guilt. It's actually a good thing. It is not a positive emotion to get you to love other people or to do good things for other people. It's for after, not for before. So, for example, if you only spend, for example, those of you who are married, if you only spend quality time with your spouse, with your wife, because you feel guilty, this is not a long-term good thing. Right? If your only reason for spending time with your wife is, oh, I just feel so, I just feel so bad if I don't. I'd rather be doing anything else, but I have to spend time with her. If you only spend time with your wife because you feel guilty, this is long-term going to be a huge problem. Let me tell you why it's going to be a huge problem. Let me tell you why when you use guilt to motivate you to do good things, why that's long-term a bad problem. Because anything you do because of guilt long-term is going to turn into resentment in you. And I know this because this is why half of you go to family gatherings at Christmas. <laughs> Not because you want to. Because somebody guilted you. And then when you go, did you go happy? No, you went resentful. Oh, my mom, my grandma, just... Rah. And then you go resentful. Why? Because you got guilted into it. Guess what? If your only reason for spending... Let's go back to the marriage one. If your only reason for spending quality time with your wife is because you feel guilty, eventually you're going to resent it. You're going to resent her. You're going to resent the marriage. It's going to be poison. Guilt is a horrible motivator for doing good things. Here's the thing. Now, by the way... Why would it be any different with God? Why would it be any different with God? If you only do stuff for God because you feel guilty, guess what's going to happen? And it's not going to take long. You're going to get resentful or you're just going to despair and you're going to quit. Do you know how many people I have talked to over the last couple of years who have left the church, they've left Christianity, they've left God, and for a lot of them, it just comes down to, I couldn't do it. It was too much. I felt guilt, guilt, guilt. Finally, boom, I'm done. Why? Guilt is not a motivator for doing something good. By the way, you say, well, how do you fix that? Well, let's just, let's just look at the marriage for just a moment. Well, let's imagine that you're only spending time with your wife because you feel guilty. Something's wrong there. It could be any of a number of things. What are some of the things that could be wrong to make you just do it out of guilt, not because you want to? Well, maybe you're working too much, you're too stressed, and you have no space in your emotions or in your brain for relationship with your spouse. Well, okay, that just means you don't have space for that relationship. Well, at some point, that's going to have to change. You're going to have to make room in your life, in your time, and in your energy, and then the feelings will come. Or maybe the problem is you feel your wife has unreasonable expectations. That would never happen. That's why just, it's just a hypothetical no wife ever has unreasonable expectations. So, but let's say it could happen. So you just do it, oh, she needs like two hours a day. So I just give her two hours a day. Well, no, at some point, you're going to have to, you might need counselor to help you do it, but you're going to have to talk that through. You're going to have to have some negotiation. You're going to have to figure out what's reasonable because if you don't, the guilt is going to turn it into resentment. Or maybe, again, I'm just giving examples. And by the way, I want you to think of some of this in terms of your relationship with God. Maybe the problem is what you're doing during your time together. 
Maybe your wife just wants to sit across from you and stare deeply into your eyes and share about her feelings, and she wants you to do the same. And you're like, I can't do that. More than once every two or three years. <laughs> I don't have feelings that have changed in the last. Maybe you're like, I got to, you know, some couples, they figure it out. They don't want to look into each other's eyes. They want to build stuff together. I am such good friends with my wife, LaDawn, and part of the reason is because we do not build things together. I have no skills, and if, you, if I combine that with my wife, and we even try to put together like an Ikea dresser or something, divorce is like a prophetic <laughs> horizon. But some couples love it. They see renovations. Oh, marriage builder. Okay, good. Figure it out. Then don't stare into each other's eyes. Some people like to go for walks together. Some like to have fun. Whatever the case is, you figure it out. But you don't just, see, and this is a problem. The same is true for God. But you know what, most of us Christians, this is what we think of. When it's not working, here's the answer. Double down. Just try harder. You're feeling guilty, you just got to press on through, brother. Just press on through. Hallelujah. You just got to work harder. You just got to feel guilt more. You got to go at it. No, that doesn't work. You got to change something and stop doing it from guilt because guilt is poison. So enough about guilt. Here's, let's just sum it up this way. Guilt is a short-term emotion after you do bad things. That's all it's good for. Not a long-term emotion for motivating you to do good things. Let's move to fear. What is fear for? Well, fear is also a very good emotion. We need fear. What is it? It's a short-term negative emotion. should say emotion. It's a short-term negative emotion that motivates us to stay away from danger or get out of danger. All right? So, you, yeah, it's, it's escaping me. Bees. One time, oh, yeah, but bees. That was very random. I saw a few people go, huh? Like something dangerous. Like you put, like one time, okay, so this is why I thought bees. So one time I was tree planting years ago. And one of the things a lot of people don't realize about tree planting is that you actually get stung a lot. Because in late summer, lots of wasps, they have nests, they build under the, the sticks and the litter. So often you're getting stung in the face. It's a really horrible, horrible thing. But I remember one time I'm planting. I'm not paying attention. I'm just putting in trees as fast as I can. I put my hand down, and all I hear is, and I look, and there's a huge, there's some logs piled up there, and there's a huge nest with black hornets, like right beside my hand. Now, the interesting thing is in that moment, so I put my hand down. Now, I'll tell you what didn't happen. I did not look at that hive and then logically process Oh my word, that's a large hive. Those are black hornets. I should move to another location. I did, none of those things. I did not consciously think. Why? F because fear is hardwired into us. It was instantaneous reaction. There was no thinking. I found myself running and shrieking jackpot over and over again as I was running away from the nest and they were stinging me all over the neck and the back. That's what fear is for, by the way. It's not something that helps you to think. It's something that helps you to move to safety. It's a thing that when you're at the edge of a cliff, you go, ah, I don't think I should stay right there. Right? So fear, that's what fear is good for. If God had not wired us with fear, the human race would be extinct. We already do enough stupid things with fear. Imagine if we didn't have any. So it's a short-term negative emotion that motivates us to stay away from danger. That's all it's good for. 
When we then take fear and appropriate it for other uses, that fear is now something I feel in order or something I use in relationships to get other people to do what I want them to do or to get myself to do things as I constantly feel fear. Both fear and guilt are extremely hard on our bodies. We were not meant to feel them all the time. They're both short-term negative emotions. And when you feel fear, fear actually poisons good things. For example, someone who works hard, working hard is a good thing. It'll help you. You'll be successful if you work hard. Someone who works hard because they're fearful of being poor, all kinds of stress and problems will, and workaholism and all kinds of things can come out of that. We all know parent. Well, first of all, if you're a parent, you have parented out of fear. It's just a matter of to what level. But think of how fear poisons good things. Fear poisons love. Parents, when you parent out of fear, what happens when parents parent out of fear? Do they have bad intentions for their kids? No. Parents who parent out of fear love their kids just like all parents. We want the best for our kids. We want our kids to succeed. We want our kids to make good choices. We want our kids, all these good things we want for our kids. What happens out of that love, that you have this love for your kids, what happens when you parent out of the fear that they'll make bad choices? That they'll fall in with the wrong crowd? That they'll end up going to hell? Whatever the fear is. When you parent out of fear, the result will always be some level of control and manipulation. That's what fear does when it's used outside of what it's actually good for. When you mix fear with love, the love always gets poisoned. You always end up with some form of manipulation or control. Which is why 1 John 4 says there is how much fear in love? How much? Yeah, exactly. Perfect. None. Zero. Not, there is some fear in love, but mostly not fear. There is no fear in love. Why? Because fear poisons love. You might have the best intentions to love someone, but when you bring fear into that relationship, there's going to be some kind of manipulation and control going on. There is no fear in love. Then he goes on to say this, but perfect love drives out fear. The more you grow in actual love, the less you act out of fear. That, this is what John is saying here, but perfect love drives out fear. This is what God's love is like. He doesn't parent out of fear ever. His love is perfect. Now, I know what some of you are thinking, though. Whoa, 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 whoa. But. But. We're supposed to be afraid of something. Like, like the fear of the Lord. There's this phrase. It's all over in the Bible. The fear of the Lord. Surely... We need to be afraid of God's judgment. Like, John can't mean this. And we're going to finish the phrase in just a moment. But John can't mean there's no fear in love. That doesn't make sense to us. Because in our human relationships that are so imperfect, we're constantly using fear because fear is effective to get what we need or want. Surely this doesn't actually work in the real world. And surely, if we are not afraid of God hurting us, then we're going to do bad things. 
Let's see what the Apostle John. And remember here, we're not reading 1 Chris 4. I just want to draw your attention to that. This is 1 John 4. Apostle John. So what does John think about that objection? Surely he's going to put a caveat in here. That we must be scared of judgment. Because fear has to do... Whoa, whoa, whoa. John, come on. You're just giving Christians a blank check. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. John is saying, actually, being scared of God punishing you is not a healthy, good, or helpful motivation in your Christian life. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. You have not truly grasped what God's love is. Is like. Now, we're going to get to the fear of the Lord in just a moment, but I want us just to sit and think about that for a moment. The Apostle John, and by the way, you can read this entire chapter. He is making a radical point here. This idea that we're constantly scared, that we actually need to be scared of God and God hurting us in order to stay on the straight and narrow, John says, then you haven't been made perfect in love. You haven't gotten it yet. There is no fear in love. Now we're going to get to the fear of the Lord. We're going to finish there, actually. But let me just, I want to illustrate to you this way. Imagine, imagine a family where the kids are perfect. Every morning they get up, they make their beds immediately. They do not fight with each other over the bathroom or anything at breakfast just like my kids. They don't fight. They make their beds. They say, you know, they, they do their homework. They do their chores. They never talk back. And every day they tell their dad, he's a wonderful dad. And they say, I love you. You're a wonderful dad. And every day he tells them, I love you guys unconditionally. Oh, what an amazing family. But he also reminds them every day. So he tells them, I love you, and I love you unconditionally. They say, oh, and we love you, Dad. But he also always tells them, but, you just need to remember one thing. If you do mess up, I am going to hurt you. And you're all kind of laughing. You're like, that's ridiculous. You can't, you can't say, I love you unconditionally, but if you mess up, I'm going to hurt you. Except that, that is exactly how many of us Christians both talk about God and think about God. We just put it in different terms. Oh yes, one message, one day, one verse. God loves you unconditionally. And then another verse, another day. Well, but you, have, you do have to be afraid of him because he'll hurt you. Those two things actually don't meld together. Now, I want you, okay, and I know some of you are bothered. Oh, okay, get to the fear of the Lord. I will get there, I will get there. So that's your perfect family. Now, I want you to imagine another family that's far from perfect. The kids actually do fight often, half the time at breakfast. Maybe it's more like two-thirds or three-quarters. They often forget to make their beds. But this family has a lot of fun together and loves each other. Which family is more attractive to you? Which family do you want to be a part of? 
the perfect one. It's sterile. It's like a hospital. We say the words we love you. It's very orderly, but there's no joy. Or the messy one where they actually do mess up, but because they mess up, they also get to experience grace and forgiveness and the messiness of getting to know each other. I'll tell you the difference between these two families. It's just like the difference between two different kinds of Christian lives. One way to approach the Christian life and family is called sin avoidance. My biggest goal in life is not to live and love, to love God, to love people, and to live life to its fullest. It's to just don't sin. Whatever you do, just don't sin. A lot of Christians think this is the point of life. And when you think this is the point of life, fear and guilt will be your good friends. My goal in life is just to not mess up. Or is your goal in life to pursue love for God and people and life, this human life reflecting God's image on earth, where this messy meld of work and relationships and worship and rest and delight So which one is it that attracts us? I'll tell you the one that attracts us. It's the messy one because it's only in the messy one where you can find joy. Joy doesn't come from perfection. Joy comes from love. Here's the problem with love. When you risk loving people, you will make mistakes. If you cook in the kitchen, you'll make a mess and have to clean it up. If you want to keep your kitchen always clean, just don't cook. If you want to keep your life always clean, just don't take risks and really try to love people or have relationships. But if you want to live the way God has made you to live, take a risk and try living. You're also going to make some mistakes. But one is going to bring joy and love, and one is not. So now let's talk about the fear of the Lord. But where does the fear of the Lord come into this? How can John say these things here in the Bible How is this not a contradiction with the many verses that say it's important that we fear God? I think it has to do a lot with how this word in English gets used in this phrase and how we talk about it in other areas of life, how we use the word. So let me, let me, I'm going to show you a passage here in just a moment, but let me just use an analogy that lots of us as Christians, I've used it as a pastor before. Lots of other pastors have used it. Lots of Christians use it. So it'd probably be familiar to lots of you. Lots of times, myself, maybe in years past, or other pastors, you'll hear them talking about the fear of the Lord, and they'll talk about it in terms of the picture of keeping a two-year-old safe from if they want to run out into a busy street. I don't know if you've ever heard a, a metaphor like this. So the, the, the way the metaphor goes is this. Look, how do you keep your two-year-old from running out into a busy street? Well, yeah. You need to, you know, you need to set some rules. By the way, rules are good. By the way, sin avoidance, some people think this is rules and this is no rules. Actually, no, you need rules in both of these. The difference is, in this life, the goal is to never break the rules. In this life, the goal is to love people, and if you break the rules, make it right. So let's go back to this two-year-old. So, the way the analogy will go is, look, you got to set some rules and you got to put some fear in the kid. you got to threaten them with some consequences so that they don't run into the busy street. And it sounds great. So preachers like me will just say it and everybody goes, yeah, that makes total sense. That's why God has to scare us. 
But let me ask you something. Is that actually how we keep two-year-olds safe? Is this what you do? Those of you who have two-year-olds, is this how you keep them safe from going into a busy road? Do you, every morning when they get up, do you grab them, look them in the eye, shake them a little bit and go, do you dare not go into that busy road? And do you scare them? Do you try to traumatize them to keep them from going out into the busy road? I tell you, if you're doing it, please stop. That's a horrible way to parent. If, you're, if the way you were going to parent your kids to keep them from going in the busy street is to scare them. So here's kind of how the logic works. I'm going to threaten to hurt you so you don't go out into the street and get hurt. And now your kid grows up, and when they're 15 and 16, they don't even want to get their driver's license because they're still traumatized every time they see a road or a car. How do you keep your two-year-old from running into a busy road? It's not by scaring, making them scared of you. Yeah, oh, you might grab them out. If they run out into a busy road, you might grab them and go, don't you ever do that again. <sighs> You're taking years off my life. But the way you parent a two-year-old is not to scare them and then let them go out by the road. I'll tell you how you keep a two-year-old from running into the street. You don't let them out by the street by themselves. Isn't that true? You supervise them. You don't use fear. You supervise them. Because you don't actually want your kids to grow up being scared of you hurting them or being scared of cars that they'll never get in a car. What you want is as your kids get older, you want them to respect the physics of what happens when a car hits human flesh. You don't want them to be scared of cars. You don't want them to be scared of you. You want them to respect cars. What if the fear of the Lord is the same deal? I'm actually going to show you a passage in just a moment, but I want to take it one step further just to make you think. Because a lot of us are actually convinced that we need to be scared of God in order to keep us from doing bad things. I've, I hear that all the time. Christians who think we have to be scared. Like, if you do bad, bad things, God's going to do bad things to you and they think that's necessary to keep people from doing bad things. Do you want to know how I know that that's not true? Do you want to know how I know that people don't need to be terrified of God hurting them in order to not do terrible things? I'll tell you how I know. And I tell you how all of you actually do know that too. You go to Superstore, and you go to Blue Marmer Games, and you don't worry about all the non-Christians around you that they're going to murder you. You ever thought about that? None of them are worried that God's going to hurt them. Yet we trust our neighbors. We trust our fellow shoppers. You go to Winnipeg, most of those people are not Christian. And there are parts of Winnipeg maybe that I would be scared to walk down. It's a city. But the fact of the matter is, the vast majority of people who are not Christians aren't going to murder you or attack you. You're like, this is getting really weird and really dark. The reason it's getting really weird and really dark is because some of our Christian thinking is weird and dark. Lots of people who aren't scared of God hurting them don't do horrible things. And the reason that is is because we don't not do terrible things because we're terrified of God. In a healthy marriage, is the reason one spouse doesn't commit adultery on another spouse because they're terrified this other spouse will torture them. 
Is that what keeps them in line? In a healthy marriage, it's like, why are you tempted to commit adultery? (laughs) Not in your life. My spouse would torture me, literally take me into the cellar and torture me for weeks. You'd be like, oh, that's gross, that's dark. That's not why you do it. You do it because, same reason you don't run into a busy street. You respect physics. The same is true why in a healthy marriage you don't commit adultery. It's because it would be horrifying to you to betray the person you love that much. It's not because you're scared of them. It's because you love them. I'll tell you what the fear of the Lord is. It's not about being scared of God hurting you. The fear of the Lord is another way of saying the wisdom to avoid terrible consequences like running into a busy street. Let's look at Proverbs 1. I want you to notice here what the fear of the Lord is because the writer of Proverbs is going to define the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is being terrified of God hurting... No. Oh, let's reread that. The fear of the Lord actually has nothing to do with being scared of God's punishment. Do you see that? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Knowledge. Consequences. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the same thing as like the fear of cars. You're not scared of cars. That's why you drove here tonight. But you don't run into a busy street because you respect it. It's the same thing with God. The fear of the Lord, you're not scared of God hurting you. Christians, we should not be scared of God hurting us. He is not an abusive dad which unfortunately too many maybe here today had. Christian, God loves you and he wants you to know that you do not need to be scared of him. Now, what happens? What happens when a bunch of Christians What happens when Christians who have only ever known how to be motivated by guilt and fear suddenly have those motivations taken away from them? What happens if you, what happens if your whole life subconsciously, the only reason you ever did stuff for God was because you felt guilty or because you felt scared? What happens when guilt and fear get taken away. Did you know that a lot of Christians actually fear losing fear? They don't actually know what they would do. Would I still have a faith? Would I still follow Jesus if I wasn't scared? Isn't that one of the saddest things? I actually find this with Christians. I've talked to lots of Christians. They're actually scared of losing fear. When you actually talk to them, it's like, I don't know what would my faith be built on anymore. I wouldn't have anything. And sometimes when love has started to drive out your fear, I'll tell you what will happen to some Christians is you'll actually, and I've talked about this before, you'll actually go through like a wilderness where you don't know what you, it's like I don't, I feel like I'm, I don't know what I feel. I feel kind of dry. I feel, where did my passion for God go? And you feel like you're in this wilderness Because suddenly the only wells you've known to drink from are the wells of guilt and fear. So now you're in this wilderness and you don't know how to do the Christian life in that. I want to tell you something, Christian. 
you need to know that even in that wilderness and even in that searching and trying to find God, how do I live this out in a different way? God already loves you. His love is perfect. It's not based on you getting your stuff together. His love is so much bigger than you. And if you'll be patient and walk through that wilderness, you will find on the other side a perfect love. And it's actually heavenly. And that's why we have to do a second part on rest. You'll actually be able to enjoy true rest in your life because you won't be trying to earn stuff anymore. I want you to bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Father in heaven, we can't help the fact that none of us is a perfect dad. None of us is a perfect mom. None of us had a perfect mom. None of us had a perfect dad. And we got all kinds of messed up thinking about what your love is like because we keep comparing it to our imperfect love. Father, would you help us to wean ourselves from the poisons of guilt and fear so that we can know the joy of what John was describing in 1 John 4, a perfect love, a joyful, messy, grace-filled love, untainted by fear or guilt. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast today and being part of what God is doing here at Crossview. A special thanks to those that are giving generously to this ministry. It's because of you this ministry is possible. If you enjoyed the sermon, why don't you subscribe to the platform you're listening to right now and let us know that you're listening by sharing and tagging us on social media. If you want to learn more about this ministry in our church, you can visit us at crossviewchurch.ca.